As you're being seated, please open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44, and uh, we are nearing the end of Genesis, but we're not done yet. There's much to teach us, much to learn from, and God is so good to give us His Word. Genesis 44, amen. Let's begin in verse 1. This is Joseph, the he, in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his servant, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found." But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life... As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. 
But your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it, you've given it to us. It's in our language, Father, we can understand. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears to see and to hear, open our mind and our heart to, to believe and to feel. Lord, to be convicted, to be challenged, to be encouraged. Lord, that you would change us to be less like ourselves and more like our Savior Jesus in his name. Amen. Well, we've been studying these interactions between Joseph and his brothers for a few weeks now. He's been testing them. Remember, that's what he said from the beginning. I'm testing them to find out if they're going to remain the kind of men who would sell their own brother to make a few bucks or if they have repented of that, if they are changed people. And a few weeks ago, we looked at what repentance really is. We said repentance is recognizing, confessing, and regretting sin and our mind, our emotions, and our will so that we turn in every way from sin to the Savior, from sin to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that the brothers had not repented earlier when they were talking about how they were guilty. They acknowledged guilt, but that's as far as it went. And so I went looking for some other examples this week, and I found some letters from some children who had done wrong, and these are their apology letters. And I've changed many of the names or omitted the names. They're not children in our church. They're not children in my family. <laughs> Please don't go to my children and say, which one of you was this? <laughs> none of, okay, none of them were. All right. Dear friend, our teacher made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry. <laughs> because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. <laughs> There's a shorter letter. I am so sad. I hope you are too. <laughs> a shorter one. Sorry because of nothing. <laughs> a little bit of a longer one. I'm sorry for shoving you, but you were standing where I always stand. <laughs> but there was no reason to elbow me in the mouth. I was bleeding a little bit. You should be sorry. <laughs> but I'm sorry for shoving you in the first place, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry I kicked you, even though I didn't. But I'm not writing this for an apology. I'm doing it to get out of time out. Sorry? <laughs> With a question mark. The last one. Dear Mr. Greenwood, I'm sorry for being a 14-year-old boy and thinking that turning off your power was funny. <laughs> God turned off our electricity once, and I was scared too. I never got a letter from him, though. My dad told me about an old saying that if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. So in the future, I will try to think through the consequences of my actions. Thank you for understanding that at 14, I sometimes make bad decisions and succumb to peer pressure. <laughs> okay, so those are some really good examples of what repentance is not, right? <laughs> but the reason they're so funny is because they're so honest, it's not because we wouldn't be able to relate to some of those thoughts ourselves if we were a little more honest as we are considering apologizing or what an apology might look like. 
if our thoughts were on display, they may not be too far removed from those children's thoughts written on page. We walk through sin's effects in our mind, our heart, our will, our thinking, our feeling, our wanting, all of which leads to what we say and what we do. Our actions and words come out of our heart and our mind and our will, our feelings, our thoughts, and our desires. So we talked about when we recognize sin in all of that, its ugliness in its rebellion against God and its hurt against other people, even our own selves, we acknowledge it, we confess it, which is to say the same thing that God says about it, and then we turn away from sin in every way on the inside to God in our heart, mind, and will through faith. That's repentance. So that our actions and words change as a result of what's happened inside. We've seen people who feel bad for sin but not really repent. That's not any, any kind of change that happens. They, they feel bad. There's no change. That's not really repentance. We've seen people feel bad about sin and then change some of their actions for a little bit of time and then go right back into what they did before. That's not repentance either. Changing our behavior and making ourselves do something for a time is not really True repentance, any more than just feeling bad about it or being sorry for the consequences that come. But when the reality of sin in our mind and heart and will becomes clear and by God's grace through faith we turn away from it to God in Jesus, that brings a true change in our heart, mind, and will with the result being a definite change in our actions and words. So we've gone over that again because we did not see that in Joseph's brothers, Judah and his brothers. We saw them feel bad for the consequences of sin, but not repentance. But that's going to change this morning in chapter 44. We're not going to be able to see their hearts, but we will see the fruits of repentance in their words and their deeds. Say, what do you mean by fruit of repentance or fruits of repentance? Uh, That's how... John preached to the people when he was baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. The scribes and the Pharisees came to him in Matthew chapter 3, and he told them, the scribes and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said that you needed to bear fruits worthy of repentance. They were not repentant, so he said you needed to actually repent and then show that you had in fruits or deeds. Another way of saying it is the way that Paul said it when he described and defended his ministry to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He said, Jesus told me that he's delivering me from my people, he's sending me to the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should, here's what Paul said to them, here's what Paul preached, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so it's, it's, a, it's an important teaching for us to understand that our deeds, our works are not saving us. That's not how we become pleasing to God because that'll never work, as we understand so clearly throughout Scripture. However, when He has worked in our hearts and minds and we've turned from our sin and our flesh to Him, then there is a change in our deeds and in our words. So repentance happens inside, but then it's obvious, manifest outside. And we're going to see that in these brothers in this chapter. So, there are two parts to this. Number one, in verses 1 through 17, Joseph's final test for his brothers. 
the last one. We're finally at the last test. In verses 1 and 2, we see it. Joseph says, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. Put their money back in, their, in, the, in the sacks again. And that's the last time the money is mentioned. Now, a lot of people think, because that's the last time it's mentioned, it's just not important. Like, why did Moses even put that in there? It's not necessary, but it is necessary. It's not part of the test this time, but it's important because it is a gracious provision. Joseph doesn't know for sure if these brothers are going to pass this test. If they don't, they're going to need to eat, and they're going to need this money to buy more food later on if they don't pass this test. So it's not unimportant. It's not unnecessary. Joseph cares about the families. He wants them to be provided for even if they fail this test. But what is intended to set off the test is that silver cup that belonged to Joseph, and he said, put it in Benjamin's sack. Now, that silver cup was an ornate, special cup. It was a cup that Joseph used for drinking from. Last night in the banquet, chapter 43, the night before, last night in the banquet, he would have drunk from it in front of them all. They would have seen it. They would have known whose it is. Uh, But it was also a cup that people in Joseph's position, or other positions, would use it to read signs about the future in the, the divination um, practices, fortune-telling practices of the Egyptians. They, they would pour water and oil into it and see how it moved around and, and what it did, or they would throw gold stones into the water, and that was supposed to tell the future, or just look at how the light bounced on the water. It sounds kind of um, mysterious and a little bit wacky, actually, but that's what they did. <laughs> that's how they used the cup for divining. So this was a very conspicuous, fancy cup. And there was no mistaking whose it was. Joseph told the steward, put it in Benjamin's sack. So they got up early, they start heading home, and they didn't get very far before the test begins. Go after them and challenge it. Now there's a pattern here that we're going to see. It's a pattern of three parts, and we'll see it twice in this part, this first part of this chapter. The pattern in verses 5 through 11, will be repeated in verses 14 to 17. The first part in this pattern is the accusation. That's what goes in that first blank there. Accusation in verses 4 through 6. So the accusation begins with this first question, why have you repaid evil for good? You've just been invited into the national leader's house. You were given every good thing. You had a banquet in the middle of a worldwide famine. Everybody else is starving, and you guys got to eat like kings. You had your feet washed. You had your donkeys cared for, not taken. Remember, that was a big deal for them. You were served. We were hospitable. You have as much grain as you could possibly carry in your sacks. All of the good has been done to you. How could you repay all of that with evil? Now, as we know, in reality, they have not actually taken the cup. They have a clear conscience. They have not repaid evil for good by stealing the cup. But they did do that over 20 years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery. So the first part of the accusation uh, is, is, in general, true and real. You have repaid evil for good. The specific charge that comes up that they've stolen the cup is not, it's not true, it's false. By the way, we need to say that there's not really any evidence that Joseph actually used the cup for divining. Uh, he, the, the words that are used here don't actually say that he did um, Many people agree and believe that he used it for drinking, though many um, other scholars disagree. The liberal scholars disagree. They say, no, he used it for divining, but it's a point to be discussed some other time. The point is, here's the cup, right? The accusation is you've repaid evil for good. You've taken this cup. The last part of the accusation is you've done evil in doing this. That word evil 
is a word that literally means to spoil or to ruin by just breaking in pieces. You've just, you've just ruined everything for yourself. You've just shattered any trust, anything that was good. That's the accusation that Joseph instructs his steward to bring to them. The next part is the important part. This is their response. This is how they respond to that, verses 7 to 9. And there are three parts to their response. This is all of them answering this. This is all of them giving a response. Now, when you've been accused of doing something, generally your first inclination is to deny it, right? No, I didn't. Whether you did it or not, that's the first thing that usually comes to our mind. And that's the first response they go with. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? They're denying it, right? Now, when you don't feel like you're being believed, what's next? I promise I didn't, (laughs) right? You you try to give your word. That's the second part of their response. The, The words, far be it from your servants, is an expression in Hebrew that is essentially an oath, a promise. I, I mean, far be it. Sometimes it's even, it's even translated as, God forbid that we would ever do something like that. So they're saying that's the farthest thing from us, what we would ever do. Now, they've tried denying. They've tried giving the promise. But your promise, your oath, is only as good as your character, right? So that's where they go next. And, and finally, and that's like what we do. Verse 8 paraphrases, look, we were in Canaan when we found the money. I mean, nobody even knew about it. Nobody saw it. On our own accord, we brought it all the way back here. We brought all of that money, and the word for money is silver. We brought all that silver back. Why would we take a silver cup or anything, even gold for that matter? We are innocent. That's the idea, right? We are innocent, and what we're seeing is an attempt to justify ourselves, clearing our name by denying, promising, and appealing to character. And yes, again, we know that it's true. They were not guilty of stealing the cup, but they're not innocent. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between not guilty and innocent. But they've gone so long insisting on their innocence. We've not done anything wrong. We've never done anything wrong. That they couldn't even fathom being in the wrong, either individually or collectively. And in fact, they're so sure as we read, that they tell the steward they can kill the man he finds it with and all the rest of them will become slaves. Now, can you imagine if the slave wasn't on the same page as his master, Joseph, at that point? He could have gone straight over to Joseph's bag, pulled out the cup, killed uh, Benjamin, (laughs) killed Benjamin right there and enslaved the rest of them. Praise God that this servant was serving his master faithfully, doing his plan. The others have made a rash oath, a a vow that was foolish to make. You know, we've seen others do that. Joseph did that. Uh, Not Joseph, my goodness. Jacob did that a a few chapters back when he said, look, anyone you find your gods with, Laban, you can kill that person. And it was his his Rachel, his beloved Rachel. A a rash vow like that. We think of Jephthah. That's the the most common, most well-known rash vow in Judges 11 where he says, God, if you give me this victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And it was his daughter. These rash vows, God actually gave the people in Leviticus 5, he gave them a way out of rash vows. He said, look, if you say something like that, here's how to get out of that. But it's so much better not to make them. And one of the best ways to avoid this is not to continually and steadfastly insist on your own enduring innocence. You know, I've not done anything wrong. I couldn't have done anything wrong. When you're confronted or you're just even asked, hey, did you do this? And the first thing you do is jump at the person or you, know, you jump to defend yourself. 
there's, it's a sign that you've bought into your own just innate purity and innocence. <laughs> How dare you question me, the great and mighty pure one? I mean, it's, it's most easily seen in the toddler, right? Mom says, don't get into the cookie jar. And she comes and she asks the toddler with chocolate all over his face, did you get into the cookie jar? No, mommy, <laughs> right? That's when it's most easily seen. But it continues as we grow. We just get better at hiding it. We get better at denying, promising, and appealing to our trustworthiness as totally innocent, pure character people. 1 John 1, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we think that we're pure, we never do anything wrong, we are just innocent, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, but if we confess our sins, even all the things that we have done wrong, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, his word is not in us. And that's a pretty bad place to be. It's a pretty dangerous place to be because only Jesus can say that he never sinned. These men don't know it, but they are in possession of the cup. And even though none of them have actually taken it, they are guilty of having it, right? We can, brothers and sisters, we can be guilty of committing a sin without ever even realizing it. Did you know that? And even if we don't realize it, we're still guilty of the sin. God gave instructions to his people Israel about, hey, when you figured it out, <laughs> when, when you figured out that you sinned, Levit he's got three chapters in Leviticus, chapters four through six. Here's what you do. Here's how to be forgiven. You, you, you confess it, and you come and you offer sacrifice. So they needed to, to do that. We can do the same thing without ever meaning to. If we're always seeking to justify ourselves, always looking to defend ourselves, and never considering even the remote possibility that we could have done anything wrong, we can fall into the same trap, at least allow for the possibility that without even realizing it, you could have sinned. It goes a long way toward humility and towards being right with God and being right with one another. But that's their response to the accusation. The accusation is you've repaid evil for good, you've stolen the cup, you've ruined everything. The response is we didn't, we promised we didn't, and we never could do anything like that. Here's the deal. This is the last blank here, the last part of this pattern. Verse 10 is the deal. Now, they made an offer of execution for the offender, the enslavement of the rest, and the terms were if you simply find the cup. That's all you got to do is find the cup. Now, normally, if an accused person states terms that are very severe, the accuser is going to say, hey, that sounds good to me. But again, praise God, in this case, the accuser actually lightens the terms, lightens the, the deal. He says, okay, we have a deal. The one who has the cup will be my slave. The rest of you go free. And the brothers don't argue. They get down and they say, let's prove our innocence here. And it's, it's almost like it's just written for a movie with all of the suspense that's about to happen. He starts with Reuben's sack because he's the oldest. It's not there. He goes to Simeon's sack, and it's not there. And on down the line, he starts going. And with each sack, there's grain, and they see their money, and they just think, oh, it's happened again. We're just getting blessed and blessed. We've got as much food as we can carry. We've got our money back. They, they must be growing more and more smug in all of this. You come out here and accuse us of all this, and look, you've looked in seven bags now, eight bags now. You've looked in nine bags. There's not a cup here. Where is it? Right? Verse 12 found in Benjamin's sack. 
at that moment, brothers and sisters, everything in the brother's world just changes. It all, just like that, they've gone from pure and innocent to guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. Because the terms, again, were, if you even find it. Not if you've stolen it. Not we've got to prove that you stole it. I mean, maybe it accidentally fell in, or maybe somebody took it and thought it was given to them. Or, you know, no explanation at all. Just if you find it. He said, if, you're fi- if I find it, you're guilty, and I just found it. You're guilty. So verse 13, they tore their clothes. All of them did. Now, tearing clothes was a big deal. You don't have a wardrobe or a closet full of clothing. You've got the clothes that you wear. And you can't just go buy new clothes at the store down the street. (laughs) When you reach a time of complete sorrow and utter despair in the Scriptures, you tear your clothes as an outward expression of the desperation that's inside. Again, what's happening inside comes out on the outside, and they tore their clothes. Think back earlier, when Joseph was sold as a slave, only Reuben and Jacob tore their clothes. But here, all of the brothers just tear their clothes at Benjamin's guilt. Now, why do they do that? The deal was, Benjamin becomes a slave, they all get to go free. They'll go home. Instead of doing that, every man loaded his donkey, they all returned to the city. Why? Because all of the self-confidence, all of the self-assurance and that insistence on their innocence has been just forcefully taken away. It's gone. What's been ruined by breaking in pieces is really their pride and their, their innocence, their self-proclaimed innocence. They're not the honest men that they want to be or that they've proclaimed themselves to be. But now they're ready to confess it and repent of it. So they all go back to the city. They're bearing fruits worthy of repentance. We're going to see this here as we go on. That's the first occurrence of the pattern. They get back to the city. They go to Joseph's house in verse 14, but, and the pattern's going to repeat with some differences. In verses 14 to 17 is the second pattern. As they come before Joseph, instead of bowing before him in homage and respect for his position, they come and they just fall down before him. They are completely at his mercy. They are totally guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. Here's the accusation. The pattern begins again. Verse 15, accusation. What have you done? Don't you know a man like me can practice divination? Again, he didn't say, don't you know I use that cup for divination? He says, a man like me, that's, that's what it was for. It was one of the two reasons it was given. It was given to drink from and to divine from. Joseph, I believe, only used it for drinking. But the idea here is not, you know, that you took my cup, but don't you think I would have found out about it? Don't you think I would have known who took it? A guy like me has ways of finding out and coming after you. Essentially, you're in my pond, (laughs) and and you're at my disposal. I can do whatever I want to you. You never would have gotten away. You can't get away now. You've been exposed. There's no trial that's needed. You're guilty, and the accusation is the same as before, but it's strengthened. It's not changed, really. It's just strengthened. So it's the response now in verse 16 that, that is drastically changed. This is completely different. It's a series of three questions that Judah asks on behalf of the group. And here's where we can hear words that are not just different. They're totally opposite of what he said before. He says, what shall we say? There's nothing we can say. There's no words that we can say of denial. We can't deny anything. It's a reversal of their first response. The second question, what shall we speak? 
Now, again, the word means something verbal, but it goes beyond just saying like the first question did. It, it includes the concepts of command and even promise. What, what words can we say as a defense, as a promise? There, there's no oath or statement that we can make. It's another complete reversal of what they said before. The third question, how can we clear ourselves? The word clear here is the word for righteousness, innocence. Now remember, before they had appealed to their righteousness. Look, we're such great people. We voluntarily brought all that money back, all the silver. Now they're saying there is no righteousness. How can we show you any kind of righteousness at all? They acknowledge there's no way to appeal to their own innocence. They're not innocent. That's what Judah is saying. He concludes, God has found out the guilt of your servants. We deserve the punishment of slavery, both we and Benjamin, the one who had the cup. Now, why does he say it that way? Benjamin's guilty because he had the cup. Remember, that was, that was the only condition for the deal that was made. But as he comes back, as he returns to the city, the brothers came with him, and they didn't say anything. I think if my brother had just been discovered stealing the cup, I probably would have been asking questions like, how could you do this? What were you thinking, <laughs> right? Tell us why, but they, did, they didn't say any of that. They didn't ask him, they didn't demand any of that, and they didn't leave him. They could have just cut ties with him right there and headed back home. Hey, we're good. Benjamin, I don't know what you did that for, but we're out. The servant had said, he's my slave, you all go home, but they went with. Judah explains that this has just undone all of their supposed innocence and self-righteousness and self-justification for their sins. Far beyond taking the cup. God knew all along that what we did. He has uncovered it. We're all guilty. Maybe not of this crime, Judah says. I mean, you know, he, maybe not this crime, but we're guilty. We're, we're not innocent. In God's justice, we deserve whatever happens because we're guilty. We and Benjamin are guilty. That's what he says. Do you hear the change in their words? The utter change from, from defend myself, from deny, from promise, from appeal to my righteous character to there's nothing I can say, there's no oath or promise, there's no righteousness. I'm at your mercy. Here comes the deal, verse 17. The deal. Joseph uses the same formula the brothers used in, in that, that oath claim. Far be it from me. You know, God forbid, that's not anything I would consider doing, throwing you all into the, the prison and becoming servants. Only the guilty one will be. And then listen, here's the last part of the test in verse 17. But as for you, and the you is plural, all the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. Did you hear that? They're free. Go in peace, in wholeness, in soundness. Go in health and shalom. Go back to your father. There's no guilt. There's no punishment. You're off scot-free. You're good to go. And it's the final part of the test because right now the brothers have got to be so tempted to do this. You know, for so long we thought we were getting away with what we did to Joseph. The, the last few, the last couple of years have just seemed like God's getting us for it, like he knows about it and he's disciplining it. But now we've got this open door where we could go through and we could get out of this. <laughs> we could be free. We've got a get out of jail free card. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't God after all that was doing this. The only thing it's going to cost us is essentially doing the same thing over again, selling out a brother. We'll give up a brother, but we'll be free. This final part of the test goes beyond anything they've had to this point. Even last night, again in the banquet in chapter 43, the test was, did they have any jealousy or hatred toward Benjamin because of special treatment? 
Now it's not just is there any jealousy or hatred, but is there love? Is there love for your brother Benjamin, and how far will that love go? Will it be a self-sacrificial love, or is it going to be a self-preserving love to take care of yourselves? Is there repentance? Is there a change from within? That's the test. Are you really changed men, or are you just going to do the same thing all over again? Are you going to repeat that sin? Has this all only been because you were caught and you didn't want the consequences? Was it sadness over consequences or was it true sorrow over sin? Because now you have an open door, you can walk through it and get away with it all. That's going to tell what's been true, what's true of you, if it's been a true change or if it was just for a time. They're standing there and everybody is waiting to find out. That brings us to the second part of the chapter. Verses 18 to 34, Judah's final plea for his brothers. His final plea. Judah decides to get up. He went up to him and he starts talking. Now the expectation here is that Judah is going to say, thank you. We appreciate everything you've done for us. Benji, I'm not sure what you were thinking, (laughs) what was going on with you, uh, but we got to be going. Shalom. Peace. (laughs) Right? And, And they leave. That's what's expected. But as we read, Judah goes on to great lengths to explain why they can't just leave. They can't just do this. And notice he doesn't lead with, his first part of his statement is not, look, man, I'm the promise. I'm the guarantee that he gets back safely. So, you know, let's work something out. He doesn't lead with that at all. One commentator said this about Judah's speech here, quote, this is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled, end quote. He stands and he gives this explanation, and we'll see what he says at the end. We, we've read it already, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Instead of self-preservation, instead of looking out for himself and saying, good, I'm out of here, there's a humble focus on this man who's in charge, a humble focus on himself and his family as being at his mercy, and a great concern for his father and his half-brother, Benjamin, even at his own expense. In these verses, he he refers to uh, himself and his brothers as servants 12 times. He refers to his father 15 times, just in these verses. He refers to this man, Joseph, as my Lord seven times. So he starts with that appeal for Joseph to listen. You know, there's no reason for you to listen. (laughs) You don't have to. You're the boss. You're in charge. You've already made this decision. You're just like Pharaoh. I mean, you're second only to Pharaoh. I know you don't have to, but please listen. Please don't get mad. With a snap of your fingers, I'm toast. But let me speak. And he he relates the conversations back with, with Joseph that they've had together and filling in conversations we didn't have in chapter 42. He talks about his conversations with his father, Jacob. And he, he, they really did um, have these questions asked pointedly of them. That's why I said last week that, that these brothers weren't making all of this up, <laughs> the, the questions that he asked. The change here that Judah relates in verse 20 is that he no longer refers to the 12th brother, Joseph, as missing. He says he's dead. He says that to heighten Joseph's compassion for, for Jacob and Benjamin because Jacob loves Benjamin so much because his brother is dead. It's also an acknowledgement of what they believe the consequences of their actions were. He's saying, look, the consequences of what we did led to our brother's death, and it can't be undone. But you told us we had to bring Benjamin down. Verse 22, we told you if we did that, if we left his father, his father would die, but you insisted. 
It's caused all kinds of distress to our family. You made, you made us bring Benjamin here. He expands. He explains more in verses 24 to 29. He says, go back and get some food. We told him we can't without Benjamin. Our father explained he only had the two sons with Rachel. One of them's gone. If anything happens to Benjamin, I'll die. That's what he said, but you still made us bring him down. Verse 30, now therefore, if we go back with him, our father will die. Finally, verse 32, your servant, me. He, he calls himself your servant, Judah. Your servant became a pledge of safety so that I would bear the blame for the rest of my life if he didn't return with us. And here's the climax of the whole speech. The reason the brothers returned, the reason that Judah is speaking, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father without him? I, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I remember way back when they had lied about Joseph, what they did to Joseph, and they told Jacob, and they saw him in all of his sorrow, in all of his pain and distress. They didn't tell him the truth. And in fact, all Judah did was, I got to get out of here. I can't bear to watch this anymore. He ran off. But here, just the thought of watching his father fall into that kind of despair and sorrow was too much. And he offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin and for all the other brothers. He's guilty. The punishment is to become your servant. I'll take his punishment and he can go. Judah, at this point, is guaranteed if this, again, at no point are any of these brothers in any real danger, but they believe they are. They think they are. He thinks at this point he is guaranteed never to see his family ever again. He will never be set free. He will never be anything other than a servant, the lowest of the low in a foreign land for the rest of his hard life. That's what he has just signed up for. He has voluntarily offered himself to take the punishment for the one who was guilty. Why would he do that? What would motivate that kind of action? The only word that we can come up with is love. And not a love for self, not a love for self that had led to all those other horrible decisions that we've seen Judah making to this point, but love for his father, love for his brother Benjamin, and love to the God who is just, who has just found out his sins, and he believes he's being punished for them. It's not an emotional kind of love, is it? I mean, there's nothing here that makes him feel good. <laughs> there's nothing here that makes him think there's some kind of benefit for him. It's a love in the true sense of the word. Love, not like, I love pumpkin lattes. <laughs> love, like you have in your notes, love is the enduring gift from the God who is love to a person that changes his heart, mind, and will to think, to feel, to decide, and to act sacrificially for the good of another. That's not what love is. That's not what the songs say. That's not what I've felt before. That's not what I've experienced before. No, let's, this is an experience or a feeling. There is feeling involved. There is feeling involved. But love is the enduring gift from the God who is love to a person that changes his heart, mind, and will to think, feel, decide, and act sacrificially for the good of another. That's what true love is. This is what the Bible says in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's what he's teaching us. That's what he's telling us. That's what we see here by this act of Judah. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 1 John continues, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That was the sacrificial determination from Jesus to voluntarily substitute himself for us, for our good. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath and anger was leveled directly at us because of our sin. Jesus, in his propitiation, took that away. He took it away by taking it on himself. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's something that we owe. That's the, that's the language of, of owing, an IOU. <laughs> I owe you, every person in this room, love the way God loved me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's the kind of love that God has shown to us. That's the kind of love that Jesus has given to us. That's the kind of love that motivated his sacrifice to die for us after living perfectly and then rise again from the grave to save us. Now, many of us think of 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love chapter, and that is good, that is helpful. That's more definition and more expansion of what love looks like. But here's what 1 Thessalonians 3 also reveals to us. In verses 11 to 13, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He's praying that God and Jesus would work in us so that our love would increase and abound, just overflow, so that he may establish, this is why, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The love that God works out in us leads to holiness and is always accompanied by holiness. Holiness and love go together. We talked about that when we studied First Thessalonians. The love that God gives for us sets us apart. That's what holiness is. It removes us from what we were before, makes us different. The love that we have for one another sets those people apart and makes them different with us. And so our application that we see arising from this and, and, and that we see spilling out from this is spelled out as teaching in the New Testament, but the application is the same whether we see it lived out or whether we hear it taught. It's that when you repent, you will bear fruits worthy of repentance, namely holiness and love. Holiness and love. Because in our repentance, it's a change in our total mind, heart, will, all of our being that makes us who we are and what we are that makes us say and do what we say and do. It's a change in all of those ways to different, and what that different looks like is love. That's sacrificial love. Now, some people want to read Joseph's life as Joseph is this hero, <laughs> and, and that, that he, the point of this is to be more like Joseph and, and to be uh, more like him in, in everything that you do in leadership and in servant. And, and in every way, be more like Joseph. 
Other people look at Judah's act here and say, oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's more of a picture of heroism and, and being the hero, just saving the day. But both of these pictures of men and living in holiness and love and, and repentance really picture Jesus. All of the events for the testing, the sanctifying, coming to repentance, all of these parts of their life are showing to us Jesus. They're showing us who God really is. Showing us how to respond to our life, to things that happen in our life. As one commentator said, there's nothing trivial. Talking about life, there's nothing trivial. Nothing which cannot and perhaps does not test and reveal character. The Christian is always on duty. God's teaching, he's leading, he's guiding. He's working out his will to bring us to repentance, to bring about holiness and love as we've been reading, as we've been singing, as we've been praying about. Finally, this quote from another commentator, let us therefore never shrink from any discipline that God may put upon us, only seeking for grace and wisdom to learn every lesson, to make permanent every impression, and then to manifest His grace in our lives as we endeavor to live to His praise. Father God, that's our prayer. Lord, that we would live to Your praise. Father, that nothing that comes up in our life would escape and just pass by us. God, that nothing that comes would be seen as, as um, an accident or fate. Lord, that nothing that we, that we experience, nothing that we have to endure, Lord, would be seen as um, something that couldn't be helped. But God, that you, the good, sovereign, wise, infinite, holy God, have brought these things into our life. God, to draw us closer to you. Father, there is, we recognize, an agenda behind everything that happens in our life. And God, it's by you, your agenda, your will, your plan. God, I pray that we would see that more clearly. God, Lord, that we would, we would recognize the things that are happening that cause us to, to be brought close to you. Lord, that we would fall before you. Lord, that we would see sin for what it is. God, that we would see weakness where there's weakness. Lord, that we would not insist on our own innocence and purity. God, that we would see the purity, the innocence, the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, that we would pray to, that you would work in us to turn away from our sin, to turn away from our flesh, God, to believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to do that one time forever, Lord, that we would be saved. God, help us to do that daily, even hourly, Father. That not only because we are saved, Lord, when we have done that once, but God, that we can be saved and in fellowship with you. Father, that we can be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for the love of Jesus, that enduring kind of love, because as God, he is love. Father, that he gave himself for us. Lord, I pray that we would love you because you've loved us, that we would love one another, God, because you have loved us. Lord, guide us, teach us, grow us. Increase and abound our love for you and for one another because that brings you praise. That brings you glory better than singing words or saying words or praying, God, but a life that's changed because of your word, because of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.